0: This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth.
1: Five, four, three, two, one.
0: And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling.
1: Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 75. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me as always.
1: This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation. We cover the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation. And, uh, we premiere new episodes every Wednesday. You can find new episodes on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms. So be sure to check us out and thanks for supporting the show and be sure to share this uh, show with any colleagues that you think might be interested in this content. I've uh, got a great show for you today. I'm excited for some of these topics. I'm excited for all the topics, to be yeah. candid. Um, uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about them if uh, you and I weren't excited about them. Um, Very the, true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: Funny how that works, isn't it? If there is a bias, <laughs> it's that we cover topics that are yeah. interesting.
2: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
1: So we're going to break this into three segments like we always do or we typically do uh, on this podcast. First, we're going to start off with some of the hot topics in the news some trends and emerging developments that you should be aware of. Uh first thing we're going to talk about within those hot topics, we're going to cover uh the big four split, the big four consulting split, consulting versus audit. Um, I feel like it's an episode of Groundhog Day because earlier in my career I feel like I already went through this once and now we're going through it again where we're splitting up uh, audit and consulting. So we're going to talk about some recent developments in the big four world, uh, which is pretty seismic in my opinion, even though it's happened before and mm-hmm. we kind of know how this all plays out. Um It's interesting to see history repeating itself there. So we're gonna talk about what that means to the world of consulting and digital transformation. We're also gonna talk about supply chain managers that are jumping ship. Um, That can't be a good thing for a number of reasons, given where we are with inflation and supply chain bottlenecks and all that stuff. Uh, We'll we'll unpack that a bit more. We're gonna talk about data science versus analytics. And then we're also gonna cover the workplace of 2027. I'm fascinated to see what that means. Uh, And then later in the show, we're going to have Wayne Holtham on the show uh, talking about enterprise asset management. He's going to provide an overview of asset management, what it is, how technology can enable better enterprise asset management, and uh, ultimately provide you an overview to help figure out if that's something that you should be thinking about as an organization. And then last but not least, we are going to have a session later on with Cameron Carpenter and Brian LaCaruba from the third stage consulting team talking about what is business process management. So we're gonna talk about uh, everything to do with business process management. So if you're interested in process reengineering, you're wondering how to do it, what are the things to think about and keep in mind? What are the pitfalls, lessons learned, all that good stuff? Stay tuned for that third segment because we'll cover it there. But before we bring on those guests, let's dive into these hot topics, Kyler.
2: Absolutely. So let's start with kind of that industry news piece for the big four splitting those audit versus business advisory services. So just some background here is we have the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, um, is investigating the conflicts of interest when it comes to actually doing business advisory services for your clients and the audits um, for their business. Uh, So we look at the big four, like Ernest & Young recently did that. And then Deloitte is on track to do that as well. So something I I wanted to get or dive deeper in with you is when it comes to this audit work, it seems as though that is kind of going down as a revenue stream and the business advisory services are going up. But the audit work has been kind of a core piece of it seems like their business for such a long time. So are they doing this because it's a good business decision or are they doing this because they're under scrutiny from regulatory practices? This is just in North America. If we go to the UK, which is much more strict on those types of of regulatory compliance issues, what's the motivation there? Can you help us understand?
1: As far as why they'd want to split up?
2: Yeah, as far as yeah. why are they doing this because they're under pressure from regulatory agencies or are they doing this because they feel as though it's a good business decision and they're kind of just following suit. You had mentioned that you kind of saw the writing on the wall many years ago or went through that many years ago. Um, many, many years ago, many, many. <laughs> yeah,
1: way, way back. I mean, most of you weren't even alive back then. I,
2: I definitely wasn't. You sure. were not alive when this. well, you were a kid.
1: You were yeah. probably, You're. I don't know anyway. what you are that time, but I uh, yeah. probably was not, you were probably not following Big Four Consulting back
2: at that probably point. Probably not. Um, <laughs> no, I wasn't, but I'm glad to be now. So, so well, you, it'd
1: be you,
2: a, give us a little <laughs> lift the veil, if you will, for the motivation there.
1: Sure. I feel like I, I need a pipe, you know, like the old timer that's telling you the story of the back in the day, how things yeah, worked. Like uh um,
2: have- chats with Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: I'm not quite that old yet, but um, yeah, I'll take a stab at it. So, uh, so I've been following this pretty closely and actually I've always wondered, um, just to kind of back and I've always wondered how we got from the early 2000s when I was early in my career, when they did split up, you know, Arthur Anderson, for example, split off their consulting group, which became Accenture. Now Accenture is a, a jogger in the, in the big system integrator, big four consulting space, mm-hmm. or Actually, Actually, they're technically not the big four, but I was. I was kind of lumped them in with the, the big four, mm-hmm. even though I don't think they're technically one of the big four. Um, but anyway, they, they split off for the, if you recall, or you may have read in history books or something, <laughs> I don't know where you would have read this, but um, when Accenture spun off, or shortly after Accenture spun off, um, it was right around the time when Arthur Anderson got in trouble uh, with the whole Enron debacle. If you remember mm-hmm. the, the Enron debacle, they they sort yeah. of uh, overlook some pretty significant, uh, regulatory violations in terms of how Enron was um, establishing these shell companies and basically, you know, misleading investors and ripping people off. Um, So they got busted for that. That was a big deal back, you know, 20 years ago. Um, And as a result, the whole the whole industry shifted to this model of separating consulting from audit, partly because of that risk. There's, Mm -hmm. There's a conflict of interest. There's a risk there. And the biggest thing, I think, is not only the regulatory scrutiny, which they are under it, and I think that is that is a definite conflict when you do audit and consulting because the the rationale for that being a conflict is that if you're an auditor and let's just say I'm, I work for the audit side of the company, you work for the consulting side, you're probably going to pressure me to take it easy on them because they're your client too and you don't want me to make life too difficult for them or or detract from the consulting work, which is higher margin, higher dollar stuff. Um, I might be more inclined to take it easy on on them to not um, jeopardize that work. So there is a conflict there from a regulatory perspective. And so what that does is it creates a a challenge where a lot of these big consulting firms won't or can't do consulting work and audit work for the same clients. Sometimes they usually have to pick and choose. And so what this does by splitting up is it not only avoids that regulatory problem, but allows them to grow faster because now they don't have to worry about any conflicts of interest. Although I will argue that there are much larger conflicts of interest that government regulators should be concerned with um, other than than just the audit and consulting conflict. I think there's tons of conflicts of interest in big consulting firms, and I think they're too big to be candid. And I'm not an anti-business person by any means, but I do think Accenture, Deloitte, EY, some of those guys are just too big, um, and I think they should be split up that's just my that's just a personal opinion. I you know that may come back to bite me at some point, but um, that that's what I think. Um, so I think it's something that uh, it's it's part reactive and part strategic. You know they're trying to think ahead to how how can they fuel growth? and one way to fuel growth is to get rid of the regulatory obstacles they have right now.
2: So can you clarify a lot of times when we're talking to clients and we compete against their audit firm because it's a a relationship that they already have. So a lot of times they come in and, and we try to explain, you know, that that's always, that's not a great coupling because it's not completely independent and agnostic, right? There's other motivations involved in that relationship. Why is it that it's so normal for other companies to be involved in audit and digital transformation, but with these big four companies, it can become a real problem? What's the discrepancy there?
1: Well, I don't know that it is common for other other firms to do both uh, consulting. I mean, they're all doing it right now, I guess. Just to back up, I mean, they're that's the whole reason they're splitting up is because they are doing both. Um, but the key is that they're not they're not or they they're not supposed to be doing it for the same clients. So you know, you might. So what ends up happening is. A company will hire Deloitte to be their auditor, and then they'll hire KPMG to do the consulting work uh, to keep that separation. But the way Deloitte would look at that is, well, why don't, why can't we do both? Yeah. And the way to do both would be to split up your audit and your consulting uh, practice. I personally think that's just a for show. I think you're mm-hmm. still going to have a conflict of interest if you and I work for the same company now, and we split up. Chances are, even if it's not a formal partnership, chances are I'm still gonna, you and I are still going to preserve that relationship and that connection and that by maybe unintentional results, that conflict of interest is still going to be there. It's just now we've skirted the regulatory, the technical regulatory uh, issue there.
2: So can you give us some recommendations for a business that may have a relationship with the big four or might have an audit relationship and understanding the difference there? What should they be looking for in consultant services versus audit services?
1: I can't speak that well to audit because I, I never was on the audit side. I've always been on the consulting side, so I, I don't really know uh, what they should look for there, but I can tell you on the consulting services side, um, you know, what what you want to look for and, and also maybe even more importantly, what you don't want to look for. Um, what you do want to look for is, you know, the right project team and the right competencies that you need uh, to support your transformation. Um, what I would not do though is become overly dependent to where you completely outsource everything to, Um, One of these big consulting firms, because what happens is the dynamic we see a lot of times with companies that become overly dependent on these firms is they'll have these big consulting firms that are doing their digital transformation, they're doing their managed services, they're doing some business process outsourcing. And at some point it gets to the point where is this, you know, is this our company or is this is our company being completely outsourced to a, you know, a third party that has a conflict of interest. Even if you do split off the audit side, you still have other conflicts of interest. Um, And by the way, then we don't have ownership of this project anymore once we do that. So um, I guess that would be the thing is avoid that temptation to just, you know, want to have that one stop shop full turnkey solution that sounds good in theory, but it actually creates a lot more problems, in my opinion, uh, oftentimes than it than it solves
2: interesting definitely a story in which we'll continue to follow um, because i think it's it's something that as we we go through these changes in the industry it's important to talk about them and talk about the best practices and understanding your partners since there is so much bias um, within the industry right now Um, and our goal is to bring that agnostic and independent conversation to our audience and our client community so we'll definitely continue to follow that so one other thing I wanted to talk about on the trending side is there was a study done by LinkedIn, which obviously is one of the world's biggest professional platforms, that the separation for spe- specifically supply chain managers were 28 per- grew by 28% last year. Uh, so there seems to be this large migration and burnout within that supply chain manager tier. So I wanted to see if you are a business, your supply chain is stressed just because of things that are not in your controllables, you can integrate strategies to make your supply chain healthier, more efficient. But at the end of the day, it is going to be in our current state a bit more work or um, labor for that supply chain team to continue to get creative uh, and, and source the best strategies to keep the supply chain going. What would you as a business leader do to make sure that your supply chain team is not suffering from this burnout or um, creating that attrition and employee overall engagement to stay within the positions there?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a, if anything, it's a good reminder how integrated organizations are in that you know, there's there's so much that we can be doing better from a digital and an automation perspective to make people's lives easier. When you look at supply chain management in particular, you have two problems, sort of two battles happening within the, the world of supply chain management. Now, on one hand, it's what you describe, which is people are leaving their jobs. There's a lot of attrition. There's a lot of unfilled jobs in the supply chain management world. And then the other front that there's a battle brewing is the um, just the idea that the supply chain has so fundamentally shifted and changed since the pandemic. Uh, it's exposed a lot of weaknesses and bottlenecks and deficiencies with the global supply chain as we once knew it. And so organizations are trying to re-engineer in real time what those supply chains look like and how they work. And you know, kind of a third or maybe a a second and a half, two part two and a half of that um, point, that same point, is that organizations are now uh, or should be looking at technologies and automation, integration and and ways to really ease some of that pressure and dependency on the supply chain itself, but also on supply chain employees too. Part of that goes back to just giving them the tools they need to do their job effectively within supply chain management. But then that also begs the question of things like human capital management and how can Mm -hmm. we better attract and retain really good supply chain managers and procurement specialists, logistics specialists and people that are so critical to unraveling this, uh, we un- unwinding this uh, supply chain problem that's that's going on in the world right now. So I think it's just a good reminder. We've got to look at our entire organization. Mm-hmm. And this problem is something that requires an integrated solution from a you know people process and technology perspective.
2: Yeah. And, and even utilizing those platforms to just have visibility to that burnout and anticipate that. Um, you know, what are they, what is kind of the current culture or subculture of your supply chain management community? Are they really struggling? And can you monitor that via data and come in and and provide support before you have employees leaving because of, you know, just additional pressures? So I think that using that HR tech, right, and and being able to kind of have visibility into their experience uh, is kind of uh, key to, like you said, having kind of a holistic view of the business and making sure that you are attracting that top talent or talent that fits the organization. Right. So,
1: yeah. And if people, even if people aren't suffering from total burnout and you yourself as an organization are not struggling with attrition in your supply chain, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. And, you know, even if the problem isn't you necessarily, let's just say you have a well, well well-oiled machine and people like working for you, there's so much demand for supply chain jobs right now that there's always competition trying to get your people and poach your people. So you really have to think of it defensively too, you know, how can we even if we're not having these attrition problems now, let's assume we might in the future. So what can we do to really tighten up and and uh, bolster our, you know, employee engagement, our employee satisfaction, giving them world-class tools to do their jobs better and to be more effective at their jobs. All those things are just going to mitigate that risk of losing people as a result of either stress and or the fact that uh, those jobs are in such high
2: demand right now. Absolutely. Good point. Proactive strategies. Certainly. Absolutely. So that brings me kind of to our next, I would say, professional Mm -hmm. argument um, as well. So we have uh, data science versus data analytics. So these two different pieces of data management. Right. Uh, there's a recent study that kind of separated what is data science versus data analytics. And so data science, according to this study, is typically the science of studying data. So machine learning, predictive analytics, understanding those types of emerging technologies within data and how that affects the different data capture, data points, those types of different pieces. Data analytics is more of a historical type of data. So you'd look at how the business performed last year or any function of the business and use that raw data. It's harder skills. We're talking about coding. We're talking about more technical skill set. So in just kind of looking at these two different pieces, I kind of wanted to ask you, because I'm super curious, do you think that the data analytics or data analysis or analysts or whomever in that role Like the data scientists, (laughs) because they've kind of come in and leveraged these platforms, which is not a bad thing, right? That kind of massage the data, get it into these dashboards, and then their job is consuming it to create actionable insight and create a positive impact on the business, right? Um, By using all these different things. But they're not going into their spreadsheet and really getting their hands dirty like um, these data analysts have done in the past. So I'm wondering what you think that perception is kind of within that sphere and kind of the rise of the business technologists and that data uh, prone culture.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I hadn't really thought about it. And I don't know that I've seen anything that gives me a, I haven't seen anything with our clients that gives me a clear answer to that. Other than to say, you know, I, I think there would be a recognition that there's a there's a good balance there. And it's sort of like yin and yang, you know, you kind of need both. They're very different skills. Um, you need the, you know, the, the more technical data focused person, but then you need the person that can actually make sense of the data just because for example, just because you have a good business intelligence tool with great dashboards that gives you a bunch of readouts and dashboards that give you a pulse on the health of the company. You still need to know what that means. You have to understand, what those numbers tell you. And you also have to understand what's going on below the surface of those top line numbers that you might be looking at, whatever they are, whether they're financial or operational or customer driven or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I think, you know, one can't do the, their jobs effectively mm-hmm. without the other. So you kind of mm-hmm. need both. I don't know that, but as far as whether they like each other, I I don't know. I, I guess it'd be maybe, I maybe they like each other, but it might be harder to relate to one another. You know, if you're, because I know sometimes I get frustrated by it. By really technical types of people, um, because they don't understand the business, and I think they get frustrated with me at times because I don't fully understand the code and how the the technology was built and that sort of thing. So there is, you know, there's, there's sort of a your wires get crossed in that way that you might speak or whatever. Um, but you know, I think it's something they've got to figure out because they have to work together. So
2: yeah, and maybe do they like each other? Wasn't the best <laughs> analogy, but we have so much of that tribal knowledge we see in organizations with that those data analysts, right? They've owned those spreadsheets, they've built those processes. Um, so being able to create some organizational change and process change where hopefully they can now embrace this other level of being able to consume and communicate the data. But I just thought it was an interesting contrast of, of people that actually really mine that data and people that use it uh, to create actionable strategies so you're right yeah. one cannot live without the other
1: yeah
0: i
2: think that's like a star wars quote co- quote or something like that
1: yeah it's <laughs> kind of like my uh it's kind of like my wife and i i mean we have our personalities couldn't be much different but we balance each other out really well but if we don't pay attention if we're not careful it also leads to a lot of miscommunication you know because we have such different communication styles and personalities and all that stuff so and i imagine you know for a lot of you listening that have spouses or significant others or have in the past uh, or just friendships, personal, professional relationships or whatever, um, I think that's true in a lot of cases. So you kind of relate it to that in that way. Um, I think we can all relate to that in that personal level.
2: Absolutely. You heard it here, folks. Once again, digital transformation equals relationship therapy. So we are are here to provide whatever service you need when it comes to advisory.
1: Solving all sorts of the world's problems here in this, this <laughs> podcast—the only podcast where you're going to find these sorts of answers.
2: Yes, it's very, very versatile. So, absolutely. But um, I, I think that is a good, um, a good kind of comparison to the two of just you know you, you need two sides of of each skill set in any discipline to make sure that you have a balance that's going to be healthy for the organization. So, thanks for your feedback um, on that. Um, So the workplace of 2027 is our last hot topic today. And it always kind of cracks me up because, you know, you'd have the workplace of 2020, whatever, you know, it's not really 2027, but I think it comes up with some interesting points. This study that took a lot of different um, polls when it came to bigger companies, smaller companies, just what essentially businesses will look like and that human centric type of approach. And I talk, I have to be honest. When I hear human centric, I kind of roll my eyes. And I, I will share an unpopular opinion. Per your um, set the stage on TikTok with your you know work in the office, um, which oh. got a lot of <laughs> a lot of um, attention. But I guess maybe it's my background. I came from that we all work, we all eat mentality, and so I think there's a super fine line between. Getting benefits for an employee and making sure that the employee experience is optimized, mm-hmm. making sure they feel valued, totally important. But now I think we've almost created a monster in a workforce that thinks that's what they deserve. So yeah. when you look at these studies, you'll you'll see all of these different benefits that come into employees' personal lives, donating to philanthropic um, causes, all of these different pieces, that to me it creates a lot of noise just within the strategic pro- approach of the business because it is a business, right? That's its job is to make money um, and service an employees. So I wanted to get your feedback on my unpopular opinion that maybe we've gone a bit too human centric and we we might want to focus on balancing actually making money as a business, creating revenue, profits, and ROI, and our employees.
1: Yeah, it's a controversial topic for sure. And I love to throw myself into that Mm -hmm. uh, controversial uh, discussion, much like, uh, by the way, Elon Musk just did a couple of weeks ago. He kind of came out and said, you know, not only did he come out and say all of his employees at Tesla and SpaceX are going to, they need to get back to work or get back to the office, but he came out and said, if they don't like it, um, they can go pretend he's the they can go pretend to work somewhere else, uh, insinuating that they're just pretending to work by not being in the office. I think that might be a little extreme. I, I wouldn't go that far, uh, especially with our, you know, for our team, you know, we're mm-hmm. highly educated. We're sort of at the tip of Maslow's hierarchy. We're at that top level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But this whole work from home thing, it, it drives me crazy in so many ways, not because I necessarily disagree with the whole mm-hmm. work from home thing thing. I th- I think there is a middle ground, a, a happy mm-hmm. medium there somewhere where, yeah, you're in the office. Sometimes you don't necessarily need to be there all the time. Um, but I, I don't believe in the full, you know, just work remotely 100%, unless you're a developer or something like that, where mm-hmm. you don't really need any sort of meaningful human interaction. But I think the bigger problem I have with it is that this is such a there's such a narrow percent of the population that this discussion is even relevant to that, you know, 95% of the world cannot, it's, it's like speaking of noise, it's like, what do you mean work from home? I have to go to the factory or I have to go to the warehouse. I don't get, I don't have the option. I, you know, they were, these are the guys and gals that were working with masks and all these PPE equipment while we're all sitting at home complaining about how someday we might have to go to the office,
0: mm-hmm. you know? So
1: it really, it actually kind of irritates me because mm-hmm. the, they're the ones that kept the economy going. If you, if you think about right. it, during the pandemic, it was 95% of the world that was out there doing the real work in the world. And there's people like you and me and consultants and other white collar office workers. that are sitting here debating whether or not we should work from home, you know, forever. So it just drives me crazy because I feel like it's so out of touch with reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, don't get me wrong. Most of the people we interact with at our clients, like especially me, I'm mostly dealing with C-level people mm-hmm. where, yeah, they have the luxury of potentially working from home. And maybe they, you know, a lot of them are working from home a lot of the time. And even the office workers, a lot of them are still working from home or there's some sort of hybrid. But most of the people that are impacted by the work we do, as far as like digital transformation and and people process technology type changes, most of those people don't even have this option. So to me, it's just like, stop, stop talking about it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. (laughs) So, you know, like it, you know, I have my own opinion. Every leader is going to have their opinion. But I do think though, I do, I honestly believe the reason there's so much like social media and sort of mainstream pushback on the idea of going back to the office is because the tail's wagging the dog now people people would rather work from home and if i'm an average person that has that option of course i'm gonna want to work from home because there's there's a whole bunch of reasons why because i don't have to shower in the morning i don't have to drive i don't have to deal with getting interrupted at the office i can take my kids to school you know there's a million reasons why personally i would want to work from home full time but the reality is we're all here to, you know, we're here to run a business. We're not here to make our lives easier necessarily. I mean, we like to make it easier at the same time, but you also have to run the business. And I think you're right. The pendulum swung too far that way. I think it needs to settle somewhere in the, in the middle there for sure.
2: Absolutely. Well, I, I think that, you know, that's all it, to your point, it really has to be, um, it has to work for the organization, right? Whether we're talking about a work from home, but I, I think really having that conversation about um, different areas of of work um, is really important. You know, me as a parent, when the pandemic happened, I had two young kids at home and no childcare. But at the end of the day, I could work from home. I mean, I don't know how you work with two toddlers, but I didn't have to look at them and go to a physical job and figure out what I cared for. So, you know, that that is something that I think is a, a really important consideration. And then I think yeah. it's also really refreshing um, to have a business that, of course, values their employees, that develops them, that gives them new skill sets, that challenges them, that makes them better employees. But there is also a very refreshing mantra of sometimes people just don't match the organization just like your relationship scenario. One person cannot do all the work, right? So I think that meet in the middle piece of that, and I'm looking forward to kind of normalizing the conversation that this has to be best for my business culture, not so much for the employee working from home. I really hope they enjoy their job here, but it's not the business's job to go out and completely transform their overall DNA their operations to meet the employee because they don't want to leave their dog during the day so sorry yeah. about you know you can end rant and our ted talk here but <laughs> i do think that it's a um, important piece of conversation for those employees for those businesses that it has to be what you want it to be where you feel valued where you feel as though you can make an impact same on the business side that you have a team you can count on um, yeah no matter where where you are physically or or what you're doing um, as far as initiatives and strategies. So, yeah, here's the way I would
1: here's here's the way ahead. I would think about it. If if you're on a digital transformation team,
2: mm-hmm. let's
1: just say you're you're part of a project team, even if you're not an executive, let's just say you're on a project team. Um, the way I would think about it is, we can sit here and talk about whether or not you as a as a project team member should have the the ability to work from home, work remotely 100. percent Let's just say the answer is yes, you should be able to, and you're going to do that. We, we have to look is beyond that and say, okay, I'm, I'm helping. I'm a key part of a big transformation. That's going to affect my entire organization. And for most organizations, except for companies like ours, that are in professional services or, um, you know, other white collar types of roles. Um, that's a, that's a small percentage of the overall working population. Most, most organizations have frontline workers that don't have the option of working from home. So if you're on a digital transformation project team, which is a majority Mm -hmm. of this audience here listening um you have to think about how that comes across i mean you're you're here trying to manage and, and lead the change and lead the way for all these people and if you're saying eh, i'm not coming in the office because i don't have to i can do this all over zoom that sends that's just a bad look in my opinion i you've you've completely lost your you've lost your audience and and i'm a change management person at heart and i think that's you know a lot of change management people think well you should let people do whatever they want work from home and to your point, uh, become really human centric, and I think you do need some of that, but you also need to be able to relate to them too. And I think it's totally unrelatable when you come out and say, you know, I'm part of a transformation team, whether I'm a consultant or internal employee, um, and I'm just going to work 100% remotely. It just doesn't look good. Um, you know, we had a we had a uh, not to air too much dirty laundry about our own company, but we had a we had an employee recently that uh, interviewed great. Everyone loved loved her. Um, she came on board and she was like, I refuse to come to the office like ever, not even to meet the team once. And she was based here in Denver, uh, where we're based, where our headquarters are. And she also refused to travel to clients because you don't have to right? in today's day and age, you can just do it all over zoom. And she didn't last, she didn't last more than like three or four months just because mm-hmm. she just never connected with the organization. She never connected with our clients and you can't do our kind of work without connecting. And if you're doing any sort of transformation, you need to connect with people. You need to relate. And you can't relate to people if you're not kind of standing with them side by side. I, I still remember during the pandemic, I had a, I, I think I might've mentioned this on a previous podcast several weeks ago, but I'll tell it again, cause it's highly relevant here. But I, I was on a, um, during the pandemic, I was working from home, like a lot of us were, mm-hmm. and I was, I was waiting for this client to get on the call. I was a potential client and he was the, uh, the CEO of a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. And right as he got on, I unmuted my line and my dog starts barking. And I noticed like as my dog's barking, I'm trying to get my dogs to be quiet. He's clearly in the office and he's got his orange vest on because he was clearly just out mm-hmm. on the shop floor, comes rolling in, you know, straight mm-hmm. off the shop floor to take this meeting with me. And it just, at that moment, I had this feeling of like, I'm not connecting with this guy at all that like, he can't relate to me sitting at home with my dog barking in the background. He's been here through the entire pandemic. I guarantee you going in that warehouse every day while we're sitting at home, dreading the day that we might someday have to go back to the office. So right then I was like, you know what, that's totally, it's a mismatch. I'm not connecting with this guy. Mm -hmm. I'm not relatable. I'm not empathizing. So anyway, I know that's a rant, but I I feel very strongly about it. And I think to lead transformations effectively, Mm -hmm. especially the people side, you have to be able to empathize and you have to be in the front lines doing the stuff you may not want to do, but guess what? Most of the world's doing stuff they don't want to do necessarily either. So I'm old school that way, I suppose. So that's what that's what that's what you get with an old timer like me.
2: Oh, man. Well, um, I think that it, it goes to kind of our conversation from last week, too, is, is how do you do a, a how do you create an impact and understand the front lines behavior or experience for those multinational organizations if you can't be there that's very difficult to do and then you don't have the insight to advise right you don't become a valued advisor because you don't have any information besides what you might see through a computer screen so you know it's definitely a very good debate and of course we hope that you sound off in the comments and tell us what you think because we we definitely want to know um everyone's unpopular opinion (laughs) um But I think it it also goes into the industries that we talk, talked about in person. And we should do a segment of industries that really have always been in person. And that's a good segue into um, our conversation or your conversation, I should say, with Wayne when you talked about um, what is enterprise asset management because a lot of those industries have been Mining, oil and gas, utilities, shipping, those types of different industries that utilize these systems and, and processes. So I, I think that's a great segue into into what he's going to talk about and how they they manage their assets um, and how to optimize that overall operation process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the a lot of blue-collar and capital intensive industries are the ones that can benefit most from enterprise asset management. And I should probably share one last thing. Just to add some uh, belated context to my rant about working from home. I come from a blue collar background. My parents were blue collar, so that's the way I think. So I don't, I don't, uh, I guess in many, in some ways, I don't relate as well to white collar people complaining about working from home when my parents were, you know, struggling to get by. So the blue collar thing has a has a place uh, deep in my DNA and my heart, um, and that's part of why this conversation with Wayne is so interesting too, is because the enterprise asset management is so. Ah, uh, focused on that, and, and you certainly don't have to just be a blue collar type of organization. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, anything with capital intensive types of mm-hmm. um, assets uh, are something that can benefit from it. So we're gonna uh, after a break, we're gonna have Wayne Holtham, who is the head or the the executive vice president of Third Stage Asia Pacific, who also happens to be an expert in enterprise asset management. He's gonna be on the show talking about what is asset management and how it might apply to your organization. And the interesting thing about it is it actually applies to more organizations than you might think. Mm -hmm. And enterprise asset management is one of those capabilities that oftentimes gets overlooked in a digital transformation. But it's one that can deliver a huge amount of business value, whether you're deploying it as part of an ERP implementation or as part of just a broader uh, best of breed solution where you have an enterprise asset management system as a as a integrated system. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more transformation ground control with uh, Wayne Holtham after the break.
3: download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
1: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 75. And uh, my name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. Welcome back to the show. And now uh, we've had the the promo break here for me to calm down and collect myself and uh, introduce <laughs> our, our next guest after the rant about uh, working from home and that whole thing. Um, so now you know one of, another one of my triggers. I think as we do the show, Kyler, you're, you're finding what my what my triggers are, and that's that's one of them. So you, you can you know feel free to um, push on that at any any time. You just have to deal with the consequences. Oh,
2: I knew <laughs> what I was doing. That was very I'm
1: Oh, that's good. I, so you you knew what you were getting yourself into That's Yeah,
2: that's what I wanted.
1: <laughs> right. Good to know. Well, I got to watch out then for the questions yeah, you might throw my way going I forward. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of triggers or not really, it has nothing to do with triggers. Uh, I was just aiming for a, a transition that wasn't there. Uh, we're going to have Wayne Holtham on the show. And actually, this is a clip, uh, an interview I did with him a couple years ago. It was about two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I did this clip with him. Uh, I was shortly after he joined the company and we had just been, he and I worked together uh, with one of our clients in um, in Australia. Um, it was a power company and we did some uh, consulting work there. And uh, part of his role was on the asset management side of things. And he he's done a lot of work in the energy and utilities industry, as have I. And that's an area where enterprise asset management is especially important. But As we'll talk about in this discussion it's relevant to a lot of different types of industries especially if you have physical uh, capital assets that are critical to your business Um, things like construction uh, manufacturing with your shop floor machinery and that sort of thing Um, lots of different uh, types of companies aerospace and defense obviously is another one Um, so a lot of different companies out there struggle to manage and optimize their assets. And so enterprise asset management is something that's very relevant in digital transformation today. So what I want to do is play this clip uh, of me interviewing Wayne back in uh, 2020, and we're going to talk about an overview of enterprise asset management. So let's cut to the clip here.
4: Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. I've, um, it, it's, it's good to be part of the uh, the third stage family. A bit of my background is that I've uh, uh, Seen, yeah, been in this space of uh, asset management uh, over a number of years. Um, came from a trade background and then went into consulting. And so a big, a big portion of my uh, my career has been in that, uh, delivering uh, enterprise asset management um, projects. And uh, so, uh, so it's interesting that we're actually here today to talk about the differences of VAM.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. Uh, first of all, it's great having you on the team. Our Australia office is one of the more recent offices that, that we've opened uh, internationally. And uh, you and I have worked together for some time even before uh, you becoming part of Third Stage. So It's good to have you on board. Um, now, talking about enterprise asset management, that's something that some people may have heard of, some people listening may have heard of, um, some may not have, um, but what is, if you were to simplify for the lay person or someone who's not familiar with the term, what, what exactly is enterprise asset management?
4: Uh, it's it's about uh, having uh, managing your assets so that you can actually plan and schedule and maintain them effectively. But you need to leverage a lot of your other ERP type. Um, Uh, your ERP type uh, functions. So your HCM, your, um, your finance. And so it leverages all of that, but it takes the next layer of complexity because you need to plan and schedule and you need to um, uh, have intelligence about your assets and understand what your assets are and what they should perform like. So, so it's a bit more detail uh, that overlays it uh, other than just an ERP.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Asset intensive uh, companies or companies are investing heavily in capital assets. I imagine that's a pretty important technology. Um, What are some of those industries, though, that would benefit the most or that most commonly would be drawn to uh, enterprise asset management technology?
4: Uh, Mining, oil and gas have always been the traditional um, uh, players of uh, enterprise asset management. Uh, These days, a bit more has come into the uh, they have, um, you know, companies that end up as an infrastructure as a service. So a utility, electricity utility, a water utility, you know, airports, uh, port, shipping ports, uh, terminals, those sort of things are all now highly asset intensive and they need to be managed and understood on their life cycle of their assets, so that they can actually maintain for a particular cost base. And so, um, so those there's a, there's even even governments now, uh, health uh, managing hospitals, uh, managing justice, you know, all of the all of the building and infrastructure they might have, universities. Um, it, it's a, it's amazing how how many uh, asset intensive uh, industries or organisations we have these days, um, over and above what we what we did in the past.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like there's a lot of uh, cost savings that could happen as a result of being able to manage that stuff well. And I have, I have a question for you along those lines here, here in a second.
5: Yeah.
1: Um, so what did you, just a, a question along the lines of your your response of, of uh, what industries are using enterprise asset management. What did these, these sorts of industries, what did they do before enterprise asset management technology existed? Or, or maybe give us a you know do you, do you have an idea of what the history is or what it, what were people doing before to manage their assets and manage some of these things you're talking about
4: yeah, it was It was really in the past people would rely on uh, their trade network or their trade base of people to come in and they would have manual records of when something was last replaced and they would look at it and go, well, I think it's going to last a bit longer or it's getting noisy, so I will, I will replace it. And so it was based on a reactive type approach. And uh, in today's world, that's a little bit hard because we want a lot of reliability. Whereas in the past, it would break and we'd fix it. We'd just accept that. And, and it wasn't the, the pressure or the cost uh, drivers that, um, that drove high performance. Whereas today, it's, it's more of we need maximum uptime. You know, we're actually, if we're an infrastructure uh, service provider, we want to maintain a very high service level But we don't want failures. And so, so it's, it's now we need to understand what's the health of an asset. Um, We need to be able to predict what it might be doing so that we don't have outages when we don't, when we don't really don't want them.
1: Right. Yeah, I can see how that'd be of great value. When yep. I, when
4: I first, just as a, a side to that, when I first started um, in fleet management, I took over uh, managing a fleet of um, line haul trucks here in Australia and, and uh, we had a card system. That was, our, that was our, what we call today, a CMMS, Computer Management Maintenance System. And so um, it worked great, but you know, it was one of those things, it was limited in the sense that uh, if you didn't fill out all the information, you didn't get, uh, you, you, you didn't have a good record. Well, not a lot's changed now when we move into the computer world because if people don't update and maintain those records, we have even a bigger problem.
1: Right, yeah, it sounds like it's come a long way. It's kind of like the, the old punch cards, you know, with yep. the, the predecessors to ERP systems and mainframes and all that stuff. You had the, the old punch cards be, you know, before my time, but I've heard all about them. And it seems like that similar trajectory or journey that technology evolution has been on in the EAM space as well.
4: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yes. It's, uh, it, and, and I suppose it's, it's caused its own level of complexity because the people that are using it, are are not necessarily it savvy. And so they don't see the the relevance of, um, keeping records as detailed and information as clear and concise as what it should be. So, um, so that's usually a lot of the challenges that people face as they, uh, as they manage work through and try and improve what they, what they do in the asset space.
1: That's interesting. So, Along those lines, and who, who in an organization typically would would own the enterprise asset management function and the and the technology that would go along with that? Who's who's the owner typically in, a, in most companies?
4: Well, it, it's interesting because uh, because it's um, lots of organizations uh, use an enterprise model. Um, the enterprise owner is normally the CFO, and the CFO has probably the least amount of knowledge of how to run an asset. Uh, In some organisations, they'll have the operating officers, chief operating officer will actually be the champion of the asset space. But um, it's one of those areas that um, because it derives itself from finance, finance usually drives the, uh, you know, I suppose the way that we run our asset um, processes because they're all trying to balance the cost. Whereas in today's world, we want to run them Based on a life cycle and understanding of what it costs to actually operate the asset, and so that's more of an operational um, focus. And and in businesses today, not a lot have actually taken that leap uh, to to uh, towards the operational focus.
1: Gotcha. Okay, makes sense. Now you started to talk a bit about this, but I'll I'll ask it. Maybe we could dive a little bit more into this, but. What makes EAM, Enterprise Asset Management Technology, different from ERP? What's what's the main difference between broader enterprise technologies versus EAM?
4: Um, I suppose the difference is that uh, when we talk about ERP, we're talking about transactional type information. When we're talking uh, EAM, we're talking functional. So we're actually saying, we need to understand the, the um, details about this asset, what its performance is like. Uh, whereas when we're actually capturing financial information, we're just doing a transaction and measuring it. And, and so that's, that's essentially the difference from EAM. Um, the other dynamic that comes in it is the function is We actually have to manage um, timings um, of when we're going to uh, work on that asset or when it's going to be out of service which also then relies on its um, availability. So so there's a lot more complexity about how we actually integrate. There's a lot more integration points where it comes to um, us needing to be good at our planning and scheduling, uh, whereas with finance, it's just we're trying to measure our, uh, our performance. In HR, we're trying to just identify who we actually have and, and how we would pay and that we're paying on time. So there's a lot more static type functions in an ERP, whereas in an EAM, there's a lot more moving parts that you're constantly mm-hmm. updating um, and 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 constantly are changing. And that's probably the difference.
1: Right. Now, it, it seems like there'd be a lot of uh, potential to integrate the data that you have in your core financials or your core ERP enterprise technology and EAM. Is that true? Or how do you see the technology? Oh, very,
4: very true. Because if you look at any any piece of work that you do on an asset, you want to know how much it costs to be able to do that. Um, and so your financial um, interaction is, is vital in the sense that every time you do, say, a work order or, or whatever, you'll actually have who's going to pay for that. So it might be that you're doing a capital improvement. It might be that you're actually doing an operational. It might be that you're doing, um, in some cases, it might be uh, self-funded or cross-funded sort of thing. So, so that allows the, the interaction with the finance to be able to, to measure and identify where those costs are actually coming from and, uh, and how they're actually uh, being applied.
1: Mm, makes total sense. We're here with Wayne Holtham talking about enterprise asset management and what it means to your digital transformation. We'll continue the conversation when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control.
6: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 75. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, and all the audio podcast platforms. Be sure to check us out there. We're in the middle of a conversation here with Wayne Holtham from Third Stage Asia Pacific talking about enterprise asset management. Let's cut back to the discussion. What are some of the major business benefits that organizations achieve or can achieve from leveraging this sort of EAM technology?
4: Well, it's... Uh, the, the benefits are really around their cost. And it's the only area where they can actually save money, I suppose, in what they, uh, what they provide as a service. So if you can effectively manage your asset life cycles, um, you can actually drive a lot more profit to your bottom line. And, um, and that, that's probably the, the, the big area. If you do it poorly you can end up where the costs blow out and you, and that's that's a real uh, challenge to manage because it becomes an exponential cost blowout if you know one thing leads to another which leads to another and that those costs are quite uh, can can grow quite uh, extensively whereas if you actually do it efficiently you can actually improve um, what you're because you know you're providing a service for a particular cost if you can actually if you can save because you're more efficient, in the asset management space, then your profit area becomes far greater, and so it's a, it's a real upside to it, you know. And and if you do it well, you can save between sixty and eighty percent on what it would traditionally cost, say five or five uh, five or six years ago in managing assets. So um, so it's come a long way uh, if to to be able to manage assets effectively, uh, because there's a lot more opportunities to do that.
1: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And. Earlier in my career, um, I was I did a lot of work in energy and utilities, and I know asset management was a big deal to them, or, and still is a big deal to them, as you mentioned. Uh, but one thing I remember from doing a lot of work in that space was that a lot of utilities had this whole mindset of of wanting to sweat the assets. So, in other words, to get as much out of it as you can before you you have to replace it, and and really being able to recognize, you know, the assets that maybe you can. Uh, milk them for longer, for lack of a better word. and Then there's others you might have to do something sooner. Um, but it kind of begs the question of when you look at capex versus opex—you know, the capital spending versus your operating cost. Do you see a difference in the benefits that companies can achieve either in their uh, day-to-day maintenance and and operating cost versus the um, the bigger capital spend and outlays?
4: Yeah, and it's interesting you say about sweating the assets. You know, in the past, we would assume a life of an asset, whereas today we have the technology that allows us to look at this, uh, all of the health properties that an asset might be sending back to us, you know, uh, information about how it's performing, like our own health check as such. Um, and so that allows us to be able to sweat the asset but not risk the failure, and I suppose that's that difference. So we can actually maximise how long we run that asset and then plan for that capital investment to actually do that renewal in a time which suits the business or suits the service that we're doing. So, so the cost, the impact of it being out of service isn't as great. And um, and so that that's probably that bit of a difference when it comes to what we would have experienced in the past to what today is available to us.
1: Got gotcha. you. Yeah, that makes makes total sense. Um, what about the vendors, the software vendors that provide this sort of technology? Who are just a few examples of some of the, the leading uh, EAM technology vendors.
4: Well, all of the big players are in there. SAP, uh, you know, S4 is, uh, is in there as an EAM space, which is um, uh, probably a big player in the market. You've got your Oracle um, uh, and uh, JDE, the, the couple of brands that they actually run in there. You've got IBM, they run Maximo. You've got uh, Microsoft with AX Dynamics. Um, There's a couple of probably niche players in there. There's the Hitachi ABB, they run Ellipse, which has probably been under a lot of different company banners over the years, but Ellipse is still a a very prominent product in the energy space. Maintenance connection is a total SaaS option. Infor runs a cloud suite, so in their manufacturing, they run a lot of asset management in the manufacturing space, they have a good suite there. One upkeep, E-maintenance and uh, another smaller one, which is MVP plant, And so, so they're probably, that's probably the top 10 players in that game.
1: Okay. So even though you've mentioned before that EAM and ERP are distinctly different, it sounds like you still could, you still have options in terms of either going out and finding a EAM specialist, uh, specialized type of technology, or if you're implementing an ERP system, some of the vendors like SAP and Oracle and Infor and Microsoft, like you mentioned, they they tend to have an EAM module or offering that can kind of bolt onto their ERP, is that is that true? Yeah,
4: yeah, that's exactly right. And now we've got the opportunity where best of breed is starting to, I suppose technologies evolved to the point where uh, ERPs are a lot more um, uh, have a have a greater ability to be able to integrate with other uh, type systems, you know, whether it be HCM systems or whether it be CRM systems, or some of the EAM systems are similar in that sense. So you could have an ERP and then put a best of breed um, EAM solution uh, on the front end to be able to manage your assets. And uh, probably companies like Oracle and SAP don't prefer that, but, uh, but definitely that's an option in today's world.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Great, that makes total sense. Um, All right, so how has EAM technology changed in recent times? You sort of, earlier you were talking about the early, early days of EAM, but just in more recent years, how, how has the technology evolved? How has it improved? What are some of the major advancements that some of these vendors are making?
4: Um, a lot of it is in the information availability. So, you know, if you look at a lot of these systems here, instead of having to search and find information about an asset or how it's performing or whatever, they've now got, developed it to the point where that information is there and available to the, to the user, to the, either the asset manager or whatever. And so they can actually see, we've got this uh, starting to show signs of failure. And so we need to start planning early to be able to do this. Whereas in the past, it was that thing of uh, someone might pick it up, they might not pick it up, and then you would start to plan. And so today, the inside information that technology offers is far superior than what we've had in the past. Hmm.
1: Okay. So it's, the technology has changed quite a bit. There's a lot of options out there in the marketplace, and it, it seems like it could be a bit overwhelming if you're an organization, you're not really sure where to start or you know, how to get started on the journey what what sort of advice would you give to organizations in terms of just identifying the best eam options for them that, that might best fit their needs
4: i think they really need to understand what uh, what they're looking for out of their system so uh, you know uh, eam presents a challenge in the sense that it's data hungry so if you've got a um, if you got systems that are fairly Uh, old, you haven't really taken a lot of energy to actually maintain the information about your assets, your systems and processes aren't really solid and robust, then you need to really understand that because any of the new systems you put in will will cause a lot of issues because you will not get the benefit out of them because of the amount of data that they require to be able to give the information that, that they're really known for. And so, when the evaluation comes, it's not just buying something that is, this looks great from a user interface. It's understanding what sits behind that, and that's, I suppose, that's that evaluation piece of how mature are we with our systems and processes. And um, you know, most times with EAM, a lot of the users are very comfortable with um, looking at uh, adopting new processes. But if it if it becomes overwhelming, they they, they will just pull away and, and you end up with a, a gap between the functionality and, you know, what you're actually trying to achieve.
1: Right. Right. So having someone like the third stage team that's independent, agnostic can really help navigate some of the differences and the nuances of, of the different technologies relative to your needs. It sounds like that could be a, a, a value to organizations that are trying to pick a solution.
4: Yeah, it is, and it's 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 confusing at the moment in the sense that you know a vendor will come in and say you know I have I have the best system and they'll demonstrate it and make it look like it, it really works well. Then right. you have a system integrator. You might ask a trusted system integrator, and that system integrator doesn't really share with you that they actually have relationships with, say, an Oracle, with an SAP, with a whatever. And so it just depends which which uh, partner comes in and actually shares. Uh, their vision of what you should be selecting, and so um, and if you if you walked into a um, talk to a different partner within that same organisation, he might give you a completely different story. So it, it's about breaking down that bias that that many many have when they actually are associated to a particular vendor or, or many vendors, and so um, so that independence really does help because the questions that um, an independent might ask are. Uh, answers that a vendor usually shudders in answering because they're the ones that, that really unpack what, what they're looking for.
1: Right. Now what about when it comes time to go implement a new technology? Let's say you find the right solution for you and you're, now you're ready to go go implement and make that change to your, to your business. What, what are some of the challenges and pitfalls you've seen organizations struggle with when they're, they're trying to deploy these sorts of technologies?
4: Well, e- EAM is is a, a bit more of a challenge than ERP in the sense that it touches every area of the business. So, you know, it will change what you're doing in finance. It will change what you're doing in HR. It will change what you're doing in supply chain. And so it's about managing all of those complexities that, that it adds in the sense that um, you've got, um, you know, all of these areas being touched, processes are being changed, information uh, uh, requirements are even greater. And so, um, so really you, what you need to be able to do is understand your phase of what you're actually delivering. So you need to know as you go from phase to phase, you've actually completed all of what you intended to do in the first phase, the so discovery phase. And then as you, as you roll through that life cycle of, of the project that you've actually completed and you understand where you're at each time, because every, every bit you miss in each of the earlier stages becomes a real challenge when you try and uh, go live and deploy so
1: yeah yeah that's interesting and it's really interesting to hear you talk about how and I had forgotten this in my past experience with EAM that there really is a really broad uh, impact to an organization even if you're just implementing EAM it doesn't mean that you're not going to impact other parts of the organization that maybe aren't directly using the solution so it sounds like, in terms of uh, other upstream and downstream processes, it sounds like those people and those processes will be impacted, even if they're not direct users of the technology. Is that is that what you're saying?
4: Yeah, exactly right. And it's it's one of those things because, uh, and also putting EAM in, it's about looking at the driver. So if I'm managing an asset, I want to look at the lifecycle cost of an asset, whereas um, but that won't actually align my financials with my financials as such. And so. Uh, there's always that bit of a difference between what finance are looking as an objective and what uh, the assets uh, managers are looking at as an objective. And so there's a bit of tension always when it comes to who should, who should drive what the cost of uh, chart of accounts looks like and the cost allocation methodologies and those sort of things that, that are the probably the integration point for um, EAM and ERP.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's, sound advice, I appreciate your your feedback on this. And uh, we're about out of time, but I wanna thank you, Wayne, for being here today. This was a great discussion and uh, pretty eye-opening and interesting to hear about the technology that's not always uh, top of mind when when companies think about their digital transformations, but it can have a huge impact, it sounds like in a lot of different organizations. So, so thank you for being here today.
4: No, my pleasure. And it's uh, it's good to be able to talk about the subject that's near to my heart, so.
1: Yeah, that always makes it makes it fun. All right. Thanks, Wayne. Great discussion. We're going to unpack some of those concepts here in just a moment. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you have missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com. And you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.
7: Hello,
1: welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 75. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, we just completed this, uh, or replayed you, I should say, this Mm -hmm. clip from or with Wayne Holtham from third stage Asia-Pacific. Talking about enterprise asset management, what were some of your takeaways? And and by the way, you mentioned before we uh, filmed this podcast that you enjoyed that conversation. So I'm just mm-hmm. curious, uh, what you liked about it, and what questions, and what what sort of resonated with you from that conversation?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I'm always so impressed by Wayne. It's so it we do a lot of technical subjects and content with him, and he not only has this finesse of making things really clear and easy to understand. But he's also an expert in everything. He's an expert in process mining. and You know, there's so many things that he brings to the table that you don't realize (laughs) until you actually get in these conversations with him. So I really enjoy learning, um, you know, his skill set in these different um, areas that might be more niche to the industries I mentioned before. Um, So one thing I wanted to kind of dig into is just the... um, The asset you you guys mentioned the highly asset intensive life cycle. So you talked about kind of bringing the asset into the system and managing to the life cycle in different areas to create that proactive approach. If a system or a machinery piece needs to be um, needs to has maintenance or something like that. So when it comes to life cycle ideas that might not be in heavy machinery or in other areas that you could potentially look at as far as asset management can you give some examples of those that might be more in kind of the utilities place the shipping ports those types of things um, as opposed to like bigger oil and gas and mining
1: yeah yeah, and he uh, speaking of being an expert, in so many things. Not only is he an expert in process mining, but he's done a lot a lot of work in mining as an industry too. Oh
2: yeah, sure. Yeah. Um,
1: well, you know, I'll I'll just give some examples. I mean, um, in the in the utilities space, maybe not oil and gas, but more the the local utility space. Let's say electric and gas utilities, water utilities. There's so many assets that they're managing, ranging from you know in the in electric utilities which is the industry i i was in for about four years i i specialized for a period in energy and utilities and some of the assets that they're trying to manage and maintain and optimize are things you know bigger assets like uh, substations that are generating a lot of the power but also when you get into like all the the poles and wires that are distributing the uh, electricity or the underground wires, which is the way it's built today. But, you know, back in the day, they were still, uh, they were building the, the poles and wires above ground. Um, those are all assets that are pretty expensive. I mean, you have the mm-hmm. transformers and all this different stuff on the poles, you've got the wires and they all have to be maintained. And each one on its own individually may not be super high value, but you add up all the poles and wires and uh, transformers and substations and all that stuff that uh, uh, electric utility has, and that's a lot of assets. Mm -hmm. And so enterprise asset management allows them to not only make sure that they have the right parts in place to support and maintain those assets, but also predictively anticipate when there might be a problem or where there might be, uh, uh, you know, a a potential breakdown. Mm -hmm. And so trying to anticipate that, you know, reduces outages. And obviously one of the big mandates or, or objectives of a utility is to make sure that you've got reliable power yep. so that's why asset management is so important to those organizations but then you think about those are just the assets in the field then you've got mm-hmm. um trucks you know you've got trucks with equipment on them and inventory so you're trying to manage all this stuff out in the field and so those are assets that need to be managed as well so if you're any organization that has that's highly uh asset intensive
0: mm-hmm. that
1: has trucks machines robots um you know obviously industrial equipment mm-hmm manufacturing shop floors you know some of those machines that automate manufacturing shop floors some of those are multi-million dollar assets and you need to you know maintain those and track data behind it um so it's more industries than you would think um that that can benefit from enterprise asset management solutions
2: sure absolutely and um that manual reactive approach that you talked about what would you do if you didn't have enterprise asset management systems, what have you seen? It seems to me that the level of disrupt industries would be much heavier if you were in that more reactive manual approach. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it is. Um, It is, but, but at the same time, there's a mentality that I think is probably going away um, Mm -hmm. somewhat in the, at least in the energy and utility space which is theres a there was a mentality for a lot of the utilities companies I worked for back in the early 2000s when I was in the space there's a mentality that you would sweat they call it sweating the assets like basically we're going to get as much out of the asset as we can and basically keep it keep it uh, operational until it just breaks and then we'll just replace it so there's a mentality in some organizations that we'll just get as much life out of it as we can and someday it's going to break and then we'll deal with it um, a lot of times that is more expensive, um, especially if you haven't anticipated some of the problems to where you actually could have potentially extended the life of that asset. Um, and you see a lot of organizations that actually are doing that with their technology now.
0: You mm-hmm. know they've
1: got these old systems from the '80s and '90s that they're still using. The, that I would consider sweating the assets. You're you're getting so much mileage out of it that you're way past you know due to replace them, and it's probably going to be pretty expensive and disruptive to now. Trying to replace something that much later whereas you might have been better off getting ahead of that and you know more selectively and slowly replacing some of those assets so um you know rather than operating a chaos and being reactive you know it's usually cheaper to be proactive and planning ahead and anticipating where the where the needs are
2: mm-hmm. and that's actually a perfect segue into my next question I was really interested when you asked him who should be managing this um, as far as what are the roles and responsibilities. And he said, well, typically they're managed, these systems are managed by a CFO, which is also kind of similar to what we see with software, right? And he had mentioned that is not the right person to be in charge of asset management as they have very little knowledge of what the asset needs. So how does the CFO get all this power all the time? Like, uh, you know, it's always like seems to like run into them. (laughs) And um, and how can organizations look to what executive member is the right person to be able to effectively speak to and build these strategies?
1: Well, I think a problem that a lot of organizations have with capital intensive types of Mm -hmm. industries, but also just organizations that are operating technology is that they they take something like technology or capital assets, something that's really expensive, costs a lot of money, and has a lot of risk if we don't manage it well, and they sort of throw it on the CFO's desk and say, "Well, CFO's job is to is to mitigate risk mm-hmm. and to optimize costs and all that stuff." So it sort of makes sense on the surface, but the problem is it's a it's a fairly myopic view. You know, the, it's mm-hmm. a myopic ask that you have typically of a CFO. CFOs generally their their mindset, their skill set, their responsibility is not to Uh, Not to optimize the assets, not to, um, you know, optimize the customer experience and and minimize the disruption. Their job is to generally to contain costs and optimize costs and all that stuff. Now, if they're thinking truly long term, to your previous question, they're going to recognize if they knew better, they would recognize that Mm -hmm. it's cheaper in the long term just to proactively fix this stuff or proactively maintain it versus fixing it when it breaks. Uh, But they don't always know, to your point, they don't, they're not necessarily the right people. So I think a lot of times you need, you know, you can certainly have CFO involvement. I mean, they're critical.
2: Always. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But an operations person might be better to to, do someone that really understands the implications, both the pros and the cons and the trade-offs and all that stuff. And then the CFO can obviously provide uh, important input as a stakeholder.
2: Well, that sounds scary. And I'm very grateful that our CFO is not at all scary here at (laughs)
1: by <laughs> well, married to her so i have a different yeah. perspective but uh
2: but, <laughs> but we don't um, get into that
1: we've, we've already done enough, done enough therapy for this, yeah,
2: uh, this yeah. episode we've, there's m- enough feelings wrapped up in this episode
1: <laughs>
0: right. um
2: so i wanted to i had one last question about integration points when you talked about um this system in particular, an enterprise asset management system, a lot of times has a lot more integration points with other systems throughout the organization than, say, uh, another best of breed system or an ERP system, those types of things. So they don't just measure performance. The enterprise management system, as you explained, is more proactive in managing timing and availability, those types of things. They involve planning, scheduling. Um, those types of other pieces. So when you are looking at an enterprise asset management system and considering one, what are some integration um, strategies or overall considerations that you want to be mindful of when you think about what that means in integrating one of these systems?
1: Well, first of all you have to understand the data implications i mean there's so much data that goes with asset management uh, as it relates to not just the parts and the, the assets themselves but also all the um uh, the uh inventory and the tools and crews and skills required to support maintain and repair uh those those assets so there's just a ton of data goes into enterprise asset management certainly there's also the financial data too back to your point about the cfo there's a lot of cost related information that that gets tracked in there as well so just knowing how that data is going to flow with and interact with different systems and different workflows in the organization upstream and downstream um that's that's one of the big ones which also leads to the need for pretty solid uh enterprise architecture too to figure out how you're going to tie together systems Mm -hmm. and then certainly you know from a people perspective, making sure that people understand how to use these tools and what the impacts are throughout the organization, that's that's a pretty big deal in uh, in utilities companies. Because if you're people on, in the field that are maintaining repairing assets, if they don't know how to track stuff in the system mm-hmm. or if they're not using the system correctly, that has huge implications upstream and downstream in, in the overall workflows.
2: Absolutely. Um, those are all all great points um and something that actually is a nice segue to our um business process management conversation with brian lacaruba and um one of our consultants cameron carpenter
1: yeah absolutely and that's uh actually business process management would be another response i'd give to that last question which is you you need to clearly define those processes and workflows because it it's a fairly complex set of processes when you get into maintenance repair and optimization all that stuff um but regardless, if, you know, even if you're not into enterprise asset management, uh, whatever part of the business you might be working in or thinking most about, business process management is extremely important. And so what we wanted to do is have a conversation here where we talk about, you know, what's the best approach to take with business process management? How do we get started? What do we do with our as-is? Do we focus on our as-is? How do we get to the 2B? How do we identify improvements? How do we do the process mapping? All that stuff we wanted to, we wanted to unpack a bit. So rather than you and I talking about it, we thought Mm -hmm. it'd be good to have two consultants on the show who actually do this every day for a living. Um, unfortunately you and I don't do as much of that hands-on work, uh, anymore, but, um, they're, they're going to be a little more credible in that way. So we thought we'd bring on uh, Cameron Carpenter and Brian LaCaruba from the third stage consulting team to talk that through with us. So we're going to get to that, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to transformation ground control. So is this one, uh, I forgot which conversation this is. Is this the one where this isn't the one where they're like showing examples of a. Of no, a, okay. no,
2: it's not like a whiteboard session. It really okay. Cameron Carpenter did an excellent job of just asking Brian Lakaruba questions about truly what is business process management. So it's a very baseline understanding of the overall science of business process management. So they Got just have, again, it was just kind of one of those videos that we just did and it's on our YouTube channel. And I select it because it's a high performer, but we've never used it in any cross-collaborative cross, cross collaborative marketing tactics. So I think it's a good opportunity okay. to bring it in.
1: So just setting it up, what, does he just talk about how to do process mapping or does he just get more conceptually into like as is to be process improvement, all that stuff? Just so I know yeah, how to set it up.
2: Absolutely. So he talks about, again, that foundational, what is business process management? How does your business work? What are those effectiveness and efficiency tactics? Um, And then when you are going through a digital transformation, how do you make sure that you're ensuring that your business process management or your business processes are ready and optimized for a new technology?
7: If you are aiming for transformation success,
1: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 75. And I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. We just had a conversation about enterprise asset management. And toward the end of that conversation, we started talking about business processes and business process management, which leads us to this conversation or this next segment, which is an overview of what is business process management? How does it relate to a digital transformation? How do you get started on it? All that good stuff. And to help us unpack that and understand that topic a bit more, we thought it'd be helpful to have two of our more senior team members uh, from within third stage consulting to unpack that for us. And so joining us on the show here is Cameron Carpenter and Brian LaCuruba, who are both based out of our U.S. and North American office slash headquarters. And uh, that'd be good to have them on the show to talk this through. So with that being said, we're going to cut to this clip of Cameron, who's interviewing Brian LaCuruba about uh, some of the top of mind sorts of things as it relates to business process management. So let's cut to the clip here.
5: Hello, welcome to this Q&A discussion on business process management. Uh, My name is Cameron Carpenter. I am an associate consultant with Third Stage Consulting Group, and uh, my experience spans multiple industries from manufacturing through architecture, engineering, construction. Um, I did uh, uh, non-for-profits, professional services, working on multiple projects in the uh, ERP digital transformation and change management initiatives uh, here. We are here. This is a video, uh, one series of video that Third Stage has been putting out. And I have with me Brian Lacaruba, manager for Third Stage Consulting Group. Uh, Brian, if you want to introduce yourself. Thanks,
7: Cameron. Uh, Happy to be here. And thank you all for uh, who are watching this video today. So just to give a little background on myself, uh, I'm, as Cameron said, a manager at Third Stage. I started my career in financial operations world, and I was always... Uh, Looking for ways to make things better and to improve the processes that we did and make them more efficient and, you know, from there I I went into a variety of roles uh, using process improvement techniques um, and did that in a variety of settings and contexts. Sometimes they were pure uh, business process improvement type roles. Other times they were hybrids uh, connecting to areas like project management, business intelligence, large software implementations. Uh, I have, so I've been doing that for, uh, started uh, down that journey really over a dozen years ago. I am certified as a Six Sigma Black Belt, uh, which many of you will be familiar with that, uh, as well as a certified process professional. uh, That's through the BP group, a a certification that's really one kind of ruthlessly focused on the customer experience, aligning your process around what your customers need and uh, making sure that everything you're doing as an organization is devoted to that. So uh, through these, you know, I've gained a really broad-based background in uh, process management and how it ties into what you're doing as an organization. And so I'll be talking some to today about uh, ways that uh, this can help you.
5: Excellent, thank you, Brian, for that introduction. And uh, for those watching, Brian is a Visio wizard. Can uh, can uh, process map on the fly. So uh, happy to have this discussion with you today. Uh, so let's just go ahead and jump right in and get started with this, Brian. Um, first and foremost, what is business process management or process improvement?
7: Sure thing, Cameron. And you know, it's important to people listening are going to have a variety of different uh, degrees of exposure to this. So depending on where you're at in your journey of, of familiarity here, you may have heard a lot of different terms, whether it's Six Sigma or BPM, TQM, process reengineering, continuous improvement. There's a number of different methodologies and frameworks and tools out there. and uh, they all have different areas of focus, they all have value, uh, but for what we're going to get into today, I really want to focus more on the similarities and what they mean for your organization and not worry too much about the distinctions of, of what each of those techniques are. So really, the, the guiding principle around this, what's uh, critical is that you know, how your organization gets work gets work done, that is central to your mission and, and to what you're trying to do. So. It's your processes that are what connect your people to your customers and to your organization's goals. So managing your processes, it's about understanding what your processes are, uh, how they're getting done, how well they're getting done. It's about aligning them to your goals, making sure that they're serving your organization the way that they need to. It's about managing the effectiveness of these processes uh, and ensuring that, um, the effectiveness and the efficiency, I should say, ensuring that the way your people are getting work done is really serving what you need and that you have a, an eye into how that's happening. And it's about continuously monitoring and improving that. So uh, to, the, to the extent possible, you'll wanna be gathering data on your processes and being able to really see the health of your processes, how they're supporting what you're trying to do and being able to uh, focus on and improve the processes that, uh, that need
5: improvement. Excellent, thank you for that answer. Then uh, one of the key words I just heard was continuous. Uh, process improvement. So sounds like it's something that needs to uh, continue. It should never just, we do it one time and then, and we're done.
7: Absolutely, Kim. Yeah, it's, your organization's always changing and processes that served you well at one point in time may not serve you well in the future. And that could be for a variety of reasons. It could be because the business has changed. It could be because you've had uh, turnover in your people. It could be because um, circumstances have changed around it. You know, processes, um, I I don't want to conflate process and technology at all, but technology is uh, in so much of what we do now uh, strongly intermingled with your processes and is a key part of it. In Some cases, technology is a key driver of them. In some cases, it's an add-ons. so technology as it's changing also has an impact on your processes. So uh, for a variety of reasons, um, things are just going to be, are going to be different over time and you can't just assume that because you got things set into a good place at one time uh, that you're you're fixed for the future. That said, you may find that uh, um, the degree of attention you're putting on different processes over time is, is different. Some may uh, be able to go, go through an improvement effort and a minimal amount of monitoring to be kept successful. Others really need to be more closely watched over time. You know, obviously, it'd be great if you can put as, as much attention to all of your processes as you can over time, but just recognizing limitations and resources. Uh, you, you do need to have a good understanding of what are the processes you have out there, how important are they, which ones are you going to put your time and attention to and devote your resources to.
5: Excellent. Well, thank you for elaborating on that. And I think uh, this would be a good time to switch gears here. And we'll uh, maybe ask uh, who, who should be involved in this business process management or process improvement?
7: Sure thing, Cam. So there are a variety of roles you want to get involved in this. And one of the key areas that I, that I haven't brought up in this that's important here is the idea of cross-functional processes and looking at your processes end to end. So often you may have teams that do some work on their own processes they may do brown bag sessions and, and map things out and say you know this is what we need to improve but they may not be optimizing for that end-to-end experience so defining your processes in an end-to-end fashion is a key part of that and so doing it means that if when you want to undertake uh, process efforts you need to be able to bring in these cross-functional teams who are involved in the end-to-end process so you don't just want to have say an operations team without having the sales team that's connected to it um, it, you know you you need to make sure that you are uh, closely linked uh, and it's not to say every single session involving every process needs to touch on everyone, but you need to make sure you're really looking at where are the handoffs and processes and how do you how do you engage the people across them so uh, the types of roles you're going to have in this, you'll need to have subject matter experts who, who have familiarity in different the key areas. And, and you need to make sure, too, that these are people who know on the ground what's happening. You may have very knowledgeable managers who have a good understanding of the big picture and what's happening, but it's often true that they're disconnected from the reality of day-to-day what's happening in those processes. It's not to say they are by definition, but you need to be careful that you're not just assuming that someone who oversees the process uh, actually knows how it's getting done. So in addition to those subject matter experts, you should have business process owners, people who are responsible for that end-to-end process, and a lot of organizations may have may have done exercises of defining and uh, assigning business process owners, or they may not have. So that's really a key role where you need to make sure that there is a person who is accountable to the health of that process and who's going to be overseeing it over time. Uh, and, and the other piece you need to bring in, of course, is someone to uh, facilitate sessions. So. Um, there, there are different roles that can do this and depending on the type of effort you're getting in, you know, you you may look for people with a vast amount of experience in doing something like this, um, business process analysts, uh, someone with know, whether or not certifications can be a good thing. It's not just certifications that matter and people can learn to do this. But uh, this is a type of area where if you don't have people who have experience in this, you're, you're going to need some help. You know, that, that's an area where uh, there's organizations like Third Stage that, that we can help them step in and help with something like this. And there, there are plenty of ways to get some outside help if you don't have that skill set within your organization.
5: Awesome. Thank you. And, um, thank you for distinguishing the difference between a business process owner or subject matter expert. I know that sometimes there's confusion during sessions that uh, there's sometimes there's a mix up and so um, I, there is there anything additional that we need to to show to distinguish like the business process owner is um, more so responsible for that process like they're going to sign it off the subject matter expert it could be a number of people working underneath them um, in different departments, like you said, are there anything else that we can distinguish the difference between, you know, when you, when we have, when you have workshop sessions, are you bringing in the business process owners with all the subject matter experts? What's, what's that kind of look like?
7: It's important that you um, need to distinguish, understand your organization, what the roles people are doing and how they're going to contribute to a session like this. So, uh, you know, one of the key things you want to make sure, and I'm, I'll, I'll get around to directly answering this question, Cam, but just for some background on it, you want to make sure that the people you have involved are ones who are able to both understand the process and be able to think towards what the future state needs to be and look to build onto. What are you trying to get to? Um, they need to be able to make some degree of decisions in there, but your subject matter experts uh, are the people who can really help uh, drive things out and, and help you understand where you're at today and some direction on where you're going tomorrow. But it's the business process owners who really need to be accountable for making the decisions and being able to say, yes, this is absolutely what we want to do or not. And they're also responsible for setting uh, direction. You know That comes from various directions, um, roles within the organization who are going to help with that. So if you have you need to make sure you know what are you trying to get out of this initiative. Are you trying to standardize your processes? Are you trying to bring together different locations onto something common? Are you trying to uh, just aim for greater efficiency and uh, have improvement in that way of you know re- meeting certain metrics around whether it's quality or, or time to complete uh, customer satisfaction? Um, obviously, everything's got to be linked towards your customer's goals in the end, but making sure that you are really clear on what the direction is and what you're trying to get to. So ultimately, it's the business process owner who needs to be accountable for that within. So they have a key role for sure in the uh, before any changes are implemented in your processes that they're the ones who need to be uh, comfortable that that's the direction you want to go. Uh, the subject matter experts are the ones who can really help identify a lot of those things on the ground that you need to do. So. Just to tie it back to where you were coming from in your question, it really depends on what your skill sets are of your subject matter experts and, and your your BPO, your business process owner. Are they, are they going to add value sitting th- through this time and, and working through the mapping with people and, and defining everything? Or are they best positioned to do a review after the fact and uh, help set some direction based on those things that are found? And your subject matter experts, if they... Are they capable without the guidance in the room or just from the facilitator to be able to, to set some of that direction and pick the future state? Or are you going to end up having a session where your SMEs are coming up with a bunch of ideas, but then you, you bring them over to your, your process owners later and find that these things are based on taking things from where we are today and improving them as opposed to you know setting a new way of doing work that you want to get to. So you really need to have a clear understanding of where you're trying to get to and what your skill sets are for
1: people to be able to get. We're here with Cameron and Brian talking about business process management. We're going to continue the conversation when we return with more transformation ground control.
6: If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
1: Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 75, where we're here with Brian Lacaruba and Cameron Carpenter talking about what is business process management.
5: There was one thing you mentioned, it was initiatives. And I think this would be a good time to maybe link up uh, process improvement to digital transformations. Uh, so what does that look like?
7: Absolutely. So, you know, organizations... Um, the, the term digital transformation, some may, may think of as a as a buzzword, and it can be it can mean a lot of different things. Uh, you know, it is to a degree, but it's a helpful umbrella in which to think about uh, the the impact of technology and what it what it has on our organizations and how you're trying to modernize and use technology to your advantage. And uh, as I as I mentioned earlier, processes are not uh, they're not your technology directly, but technology does have a big impact on things. So um, I. I like to think of, I don't think of process as strictly a, it's um, driven by technology, it's your processes that really drive what your technology needs to be and you need to align that, but the capabilities you get out of technology are important. So as you're, as you're looking into an effort where um, whatever kind of project you're doing or initiative you're undertaking that uh, is connected to your business processes, those processes and your, your business or organizational goals are what you need to think about is in terms of driving that forward. So if you're in the early stages of saying, for example, we wanna get a new ERP system, we wanna drive our organization forward and in, in increase efficiencies in our supply chain, in our purchasing, in our manufacturing, and uh, our finance, HR, whatever it is you're trying to improve there, you wanna make sure that that initiative and the technology you go with is aligned to where you want your processes to be. You don't just wanna jump into, let's pick a technology and assume we're just going to uh, latch on to whatever that technology has to offer and you know, our business will follow suit. That's a, a recipe for failure if you just assume the technology alone is going to make those changes. You may decide that you want to follow uh, those, uh, hate to use this term, but it may apply here. There are some scenarios where just uh, using best practice technolo- uh, processes in, within a technology is the direction you want to go, but uh, that, that needs to be a well thought out and considered decision where you're um, still understanding that some parts of your business may not fit into that. You need to understand, really put the time and effort into what it is you're trying to do and and how is that going to drive the technology decision and, and making sure that anything you're doing from a technology perspective is aligned around where where does your business and your organization trying to go.
5: Excellent. I think the big driver there is... The business drives technology, not the other way around. And uh, so that was a great message. And I think that kind of rolls into, you know, um, how does a company's future depend on process improvement, whether it's digital transformation initiatives or just generally uh, business process management, which is a continuous uh, process uh, throughout the company's life. Uh, So how does this future depend on it?
7: Yes, it's, it's critical. And, you know, this is, of course, a, an interesting time to be doing this as we're recording this in late March of 2020, and we know the world is undergoing fast changes organizations. They look different, very different in many ways now than they did a month ago as we're dealing with the impacts of COVID-19 and what the um, the, the stay-at-home measures and social distancing are doing for organizations and uh, their their customers and their businesses. They um, It's a time of dramatic change, and this is... Uh, Looking at your process is one of the key things you can do around that to deal with this uh, uncertain future. You know, If you're in a place where your business uh, is is struggling as a result of a sudden downturn, that's through no fault of your own, this is one of the things you can do is look at your processes and see how they can be modified to meet the change in circumstances. Are there areas where, um, you, you may have people that can be redeployed to doing things a little differently. Do you need to? Do you have the ability to roll out some new products or services that are central, uh, close to what you do today, but may require some change in the way you work in order to operate? So the, these are things that are uh, strategic goals, but the execution of that strategy is is driven by processes, and so it's looking at your processes that can enable you to do that. You may be in a position today where suddenly, um, say, if you're um, In a food business, or uh, a medical device type business, or something that's really uh, stepping up in these times, you may need to then um, you're dealing with influx of demand that you are are not used to handling, and it may be driving out uh, differences gaps in your processes that you haven't haven't seen before, or maybe you've seen them and didn't think they were as impactful as now suddenly as your volume increases and your uh, your your expectations are higher and higher from your customers that. You, you need to take a look at these things and get them fixed now. So processes always enable you a, a mix of um, some quick wind improvements, things you can step in and do now just by getting people together and taking a look at what you do, as well as driving uh, strategic goals for the future and being able to align your organization around where you're trying to go. And again, I just want to tie it back to what I said earlier. This is that um, your processes are what connect your people to your to your customers to your end goals and so to to Cameron's question about how does this impact your future it's it's the business processes that are really at the the ground floor of making making things happen and the execution on what you believe is important and what your strategy is uh, your people are are the key to that happening, but your people get work done through processes so it's being able to have a good understanding of and an ability to make those, uh, shape those processes around what you're trying to do that's uh, critical to um, surviving uh, and um, stepping out above your competition to do what you need to do.
5: Excellent, and definitely as things can slow down for some other industries, this might be the perfect time when they're having that remote workforce to bring people together and start focusing on these processes, it it's, uh, it's something that you can do, and, and something that's necessary. Uh, and without knowing the timeline of how long we can act, we're going to be on this, um, you know, slow uh, moving um, business trend for some industries, maybe we can uh, companies can try to enhance those processes. Um, I would say you know with everything we've discussed today in business process management um, do you have any additional thoughts uh comments that you'd like to add in general um, final thoughts for people watching to key takeaways from this video
7: yeah i I think another thing i'd like to uh, just drive home and i've I've only made kind of indirect reference to it here but is that your people are so uh Intermingled and, and directly connected to your processes, that you can't think of processes as just sort of a, a mechanic, technical exercise. You know, the and as you're making changes to your processes, recognizing that these have an impact on your people, uh, they're the way they do work, and and even, you know, people have an identity of what they are as a worker, and if you're making changes to processes, that is something that can can drastically change uh, the way they view things and how how they operate. So. It's really important to to make sure to continue to, to look at the people side of things and as you're doing these processes as uh, as you're implementing improvements that you're looking at the impact to your people and undergoing organizational change management activities that are going to help you and help your people to adapt to any new realities that come about and you know some of these things may seem small but if people are used to a certain way of uh, communicating and interacting with their coworkers and that gets changed and in some cases it may be again one we're seeing a lot today is remote work. Uh, someone may have turned to the person behind them to hand off a paper every day and now they have to do it remotely and it may be more efficient, and easier, and more trackable to do it remotely. but you recognize there's a difference in the way people are connecting and, uh, and getting work done and, and the way they think about it. So you can't just assume just by saying this looks more efficient on paper that it's going to happen that way. You have to think about the people aspect of it if you want to make sure you're achieving your goals out of this. Well,
1: thank you, Cameron. Thank you, Brian. Great conversation. Very helpful, very relevant conversation
7: too. That's something that
1: we get asked all the time by our clients is how how do you address business process management? What is it? How do we get started? How does it tie into our transformation? All that good stuff. So hopefully... Their discussion there helped unpack that and answer some of the questions in a bit more detail. In fact, uh, it also triggered some other comments and thoughts that we'll get to here, uh, that Kyler and I will get to here in a second. First, we'll take a quick break. You'll, we'll be right back with more transformation ground control.
3: download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success.
4: Hello, welcome
1: back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 75. I'm here with Kyler and Kyler, we just had this great conversation with Brian and Cameron talking about business process management. What were your thoughts on that discussion?
2: Yeah, this discussion is important not only for for people that are newer to digital transformation, business process management, overall operations, But it's also, I think, important for people that are really a senior level business process management operations specialist, because it breaks down and helps us remember what actually is business process management and what is the objective of it. Um, So Brian Lacaruba, I think, said it perfectly. He said, "How, how your organization gets work done, that is business process management and that, that effectiveness and the efficiencies of how you do that. And the thing that I, I really wanna dig into you is I have an opinion with no base in insight or fact, but I would say that it's very difficult to identify your own business process management. Like it's almost one of those things, like we talked about the audit sphere of like coming in and having fresh eyes Um, of like, what is your, your, what is the processes? What are opportunities to optimize those processes? So I wonder if you could actually correct me if I'm wrong or give us some, some factual basis. And how difficult is it to do this internally as far as exercises from an objective um, and strategic scope?
1: Well, it's, it, I think it's very difficult, uh, partly because it's, hard to back away and look at the big picture and see things objectively when you're involved in it every day the other part of it that makes it difficult is when you're involved in it every day you're not only involved in the business processes every day but you're involved in the organizational dynamics and the politics every day and so it's it's a lot harder to challenge challenge the way things have been when you're an internal person because you are part of the status quo even if you don't mean to be you just are and you have, uh, you know, internal organizational political mm-hmm. dynamics at play. If you do push back on why things are being done a certain way, uh, you know, because you and I work together, Kyler, if I say something and, and challenge you in a certain way, that's probably going to offend you more. And you might take it a little bit more personally than someone listening to the show that you've never met before, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just something about that, you know, familiarity and, and uh, you know, the the threat that that poses when, when someone that you're working with uh, challenges, things like that. So those are a couple of reasons why. And then, of course, you know, I guess a third thing I'd say that makes it challenging is that so many organizations have teams that are highly tenured that have been at that organization for a long time, and they, that's sort of all they know, or it's most of what they know as far as how things could be. So having that outside perspective, people that see other organizations, they see best practices, they see more optimized ways of doing things, they're part of helping organizations optimize the way they do things bringing that outside perspective and competency to the table during business process management is hugely important. So those are three of the things that come to mind.
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's well said and, and really speaks to that collaborative approach, right there. Of course, having a a business process expert, having an expert in anything, right. is helpful to come in and, and just give that unbiased objective perspective, but you still do have to own your own business processes and understand how they affect your overall objectives and roi most importantly right and that's a good segue into um, brian talked about that cross-functional approach and really being able to see the process from end to end from start to finish and how many different people that involves and you just kind of touched on it can sometimes be difficult in working together throughout an organization to say, you know, your process is broken, mine is right, those types of things. So as someone who is a change management expert, and kind of an expert in that therapeutic approach from a business standpoint, how do you um, create a safe environment to talk about like, hey, this is our objective as a business doesn't mean anyone's doing a bad job, right? It just means that there's opportunity for us to grow.
1: Yeah, and a lot of it is the simple little things in terms of how you ask the questions or how you might challenge the status quo. So in other words, instead of saying, Kyler, why do you do things, you know, why do you do A, B, and C? I might say, have we thought about doing D, E, and F instead of A, B, and C, or could we improve A, B, and C to do this and that? So a lot of times it's a not making it about any one person. It's more about we and how we can work together to solve it, but also B, you know, how can we, um, you know, ask it in, in the form of a question, you know, and, tr- and, and really draw that out from people. And, you know, you want people to push back if they don't agree, but you also don't want um, you don't want that defense mechanism to go up where everything is a pushback. And you do get that sometimes, by the way, mm-hmm. you get people that are just going to push back um, on any sort of change. And quite frankly, those are probably the people that aren't the best to be involved mm-hmm. in a business process management exercise or even a, an overall digital transformation for that matter.
2: Absolutely. And. And Brian touched on um, the business process owner. So I wondered when we are talking about doing something end to end, there's obviously a lot of touch points within that process and a lot of different people involved who would be a business process owner. And can you give us a a real live example of what that might look like?
1: Sure. So sometimes what will happen is you'll have an, you'll have design. some organizations have designated business process owners already. So you'll have someone who's, you know, the finance business process owner, you'll have, uh, you know, maybe even more granular than that accounts payable accounts receivable, you know, sort of designated account, uh, business process owners, most organizations don't, but some bigger organizations do for most organizations that don't already have that business process owner matrix and structure in place. What they end up doing typically is identifying those business process owners as part of a a transformation as part of our business process management efforts and in those cases you want to look for people that certainly understand the nuances of your current state of operations but ones you want those people to be open-minded to how it could be improved too so a lot of times we look to people that have maybe been at the organization for a certain amount of time but maybe not forever maybe not their entire careers at that one organization um. Ideally, they've had experiences at other organizations. They've seen how other organizations have work, worked, worked, um, and you do that where possible. I mean, different most organizations will be able to do that for some roles, but other business process ownership roles, it's just you've got what you got. You've got the person, the one person that knows that process really well, and they've been at the company forever. In the case where you've got these highly tenured employees that might not be as open or knowledgeable to how to change business processes. That's where, you know, bringing in the outside perspective to work side by side with those business process owners can be highly effective. But then again, back to the point earlier, you want to be, to use your word, uh, therapeutic about how you how you approach that. You don't want to come in like a wrecking ball and say, your process sucks. It's so manual. You know, it's tons of, uh, it's error prone. There's uh, tons of rework required. Let's totally overhaul it. That's not the way you come in and do it, even if that's true. Um, what you end up doing is you ask a lot of questions, you seek to understand, you you have potential options or scenarios. What if we did this or what if we did that? Would that help? And another thing that, that oftentimes helps, by the way, is to to even push things or to take the bullseye not, off, not only off individuals so they don't feel threatened, but even off teams so they don't feel threatened is to mm-hmm. really, rather than focusing on us, let's focus on the customer or mm-hmm. either our end customer and or our internal customers. How can we better service them? I mean, so we're, we're sort of shifting the conversation from let's talk about you, Kyler, and how your processes are so broken. Instead, we're saying, well, let's figure out how our end customer, what can we do to make these processes that we're all working on? How can we make that better to service the end customer? So those are just some tips to how to, how to approach that. But uh, back to your, your your real question here, I think that's, you know, you, you sort of have to deal with the limitations of the skills you do, don't do and don't have. Uh, but you can always augment that with the outside perspectives as well.
2: Mm-hmm. I would like to say I'm feeling personally attacked in all of <laughs> the examples <laughs> that you're giving. <laughs>
1: I'm trying to change your process uh, right, while exactly. we're in the middle of the podcast. It's
2: like I triggered you earlier and now you're, you know, really, <laughs> really feeling down, which I, I love the intensity. I really do. Um, so <laughs> I wanna ask you one of the comments that we got on this video from our audience kind of goes along these lines. And it's from Tamika Brown on YouTube, Uh, she asked, he or she asked, what industries utilize business process improvement professionals? I'm a BPM in aerospace, and I've never heard of them. I'm used to hearing terms terms like continuous improvement or six, six Sigma blackmail, say that 10 times fast. But um, so I think she's kind of wondering, you know, what, what that, um, that overall uh, label means as far, and how does it translate to an industry like aerospace?
1: Yeah, that's a interesting question. I, I honestly think that when you talk about Lean Six Sigma or continuous improvement, that sort of is in many ways business mm-hmm. process. Um, having said that, I'm also not a big believer in slicing hairs when it comes to acronyms and buzzwords and things of that nature. But in general i mean if you're doing continuous improvement or if you are lean six sigma if you're a Lean six sigma specialist that sort of is business process improvement i mean you're just using i guess the difference is it's sort of pre-defining what the tool set or framework is you're going to start with to approach uh business process improvement i know for our team when we hire people that are going to be consultants to uh, to help with business process management improvement we oftentimes do look for people that have experience with with Six Sigma and continuous improvement, that sort of thing. So to me, it's all sort of wrapped together, one and the same.
2: Yeah, definitely, and I, I'm sure aerospace is an industry in which business process management specifically is very important. Um, you know, and in, in the you know the fact that you're just long, launching stuff into space, so um, that seems like that would be a, a good uh, good aspect to have those those training assets within your overall process. Um, And the thing I'll end with is I think Brian did a great job when Cam asked him, well, what is business process improvement versus digital transformation? And he explained that business process improvement is really within the organization's circle of influence. Of course, it's always nice to have an outside perspective that can give you best practices and scale those. But I think a lot of businesses, we talked about last week, one of our case studies with our client that kind of wished that they had gone through a business process improvement exercise before letting the technology lead that, that they selected. Um, So that's a a piece that I I think is really a a great finding from this overall conversation um, to be able to kind of own that in establishing that effectiveness for your own organization.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree for sure.
2: That was a great conversation. Definitely. Um, and if you have questions, I know, um, Cameron and Brian asked the audience to reach out to them directly. And in this episode, we can include their contact information if you do have any additional questions.
1: Great. Yeah, that was a good conversation. And and thank you to Cameron and Brian for uh, putting together that discussion, being part of that, that was very helpful. And, uh, Mm -hmm. Thank you to Wayne as well, Wayne Holtham, for being on the show to talk about enterprise asset management, and thank you, Kyler, for co-hosting the show as always.
2: Absolutely, it's good to know I'm just ceremonial, so I'm just going to see myself as like the royal family of ground control. Okay. Right,
1: you, you sort of are. You're you're becoming a celebrity here in the <laughs> digital
2: transformation
1: space. So I have to be careful. I have to have to be careful not to uh, get too intense uh, in future episodes. So uh, thanks for bearing <laughs> with us while we while we well. We had some of those uh, controversial discussions Mm -hmm. here too. Thanks for that. And thanks to the audience too for listening in and for all the feedback that uh, the audience provides, which uh, stimulated a lot of the conversation here today. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank everyone for joining. Uh, We'll be back next week, next Wednesday. You can find new episodes every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern time in the United States. Uh, We live stream to uh, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And uh, that's when it – the episode for that week drops to all the audio podcast platforms as well. So be sure to check us out every Wednesday and uh, leave us a review too, if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to love to hear your feedback. So we'll uh, appreciate your time here today. hope you have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing you next week on transformation ground control.